the secrets to life, the genetic code of what we eat, and the Chinese regime is stealing it. In this special report, we look at how the Chinese Communist Party has infiltrated American agriculture, what it means here at home, around the world, and how to get to the root of it. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Spying and seeds, an unusual combination, one that's unlikely to spring to mind when the topic of stealing secrets is brought up. Other, more talked about issues, like stealing military secrets, may come across as no-brainers. But plodding through a field for a single seed? And yet, there have been cases. Let's look at the state of Iowa. They did uh, find and arrest a Chinese national, uh, you know, over 10 years ago, uh, out stealing seeds in a field. And it seems silly, but if you can get three, four, five, six, ten different varieties of seed, now you've got the ability to not only uh, reverse engineer that, that seed's tolerance to various pesticides or insects. That's Ross Kennedy, founder of Fortis Analysis. He goes on to explain the value of each seed. If you can get a hold of the, the original uh, seed itself, the genetic code is in that germplasm of that seed, and you're able to break that down and begin to, to essentially reverse engineer uh, the technological processes that have been done to modify the DNA of that seed. He likens a single genetically modified seed to a little biological computer. With that in mind, that biocomputer's genetic code can be modified used to carry out specific tasks in a seed. For many seeds, the most desirable traits include resistances to outside factors that might harm crop yield. Problems like corn borer insects, rootworm or glyphosate, a weed killer and herbicide. And that allows farmers to be able to uh, cultivate using a mix of uh, seeding rate, mix of chemicals, a mix of fertilizers and, and pesticides and all these other things to help control uh, as much as they can the variability that comes from pest, uh, from, from lack of rain or too much rain, lack of fertility, uh, and be able to produce a crop reliably on a year-in and year-out basis. Given all those different uses, people and countries have been keen to steal that code. We're also able to uh, reverse engineer the ability to have that seed take longer to produce, uh, where it may yield more and you can put it in an area where there's a lot more heat and water available. You also would be able to reverse engineer what's called short season corn, uh, which is 85 or 90 day corn that would be grown in a place like uh, the Dakotas or Minnesota, where you have a much shorter growing season. And so that seed will mature much more rapidly. For example, China could then take that seed and apply it to areas that are more arid areas that present more challenges for agriculture. But let's take a step back. Who's behind the creation of these genetically modified seeds in the first place? You know, globally, it's called the big six. And the big six is really about the big four because a couple are big three even because a couple of these companies have merged like Bayer and Monsanto, Dow and DuPont have merged their agriculture and, and chemical operations. So all the R&D, of course, has merged with it. Uh, China does now uh, own Syngenta, which was a Swiss company, has a very large U.S. footprint uh, out in the Research Triangle of North Carolina. Uh, but we're really down to three or four of these big companies. And those secrets to life are very valuable. 
So if you're able to, you know, quote unquote, crack the code of a genetically modified organism, then you would be able to steal hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars of intellectual property. Normally, how do genetically modified seeds get from labs to farmers? Those big companies are the ones that do the billion-dollar genetic research uh, and really devise and, and develop the ability. But then what they do is they sell uh, they sell that germplasm, they sell their seed strains to other companies that license that technology from them. They license the seed genetics and they mix it up with their own to produce maybe their own proprietary hybrids. Um, then you would need to get access to a seed plot or something that's run by one of those companies. So uh, a very, very small uh, group of companies at the top that control a, a great deal of the food production of this country from a grains and oilseed side. But some people and countries have gotten tired of shelling out billions to license the seeds. And uh, so being able to, uh, you know, intercept technology from one of them or uh, be able to get access to some of that in, in a way that they didn't even know it. Uh, now you're talking about a, a 1.4 billion uh, mouth to feed market in a place like China that used to have to buy uh, American and European genetic technology. Uh, and now they have the means to do their own and race ahead and provide that to the rest of the world uh, and undermine U.S. efforts in that way as well. So uh, it becomes a lot more complicated uh, when you've only got just a couple of companies that really control all of this. So how is China's seed theft being felt in the U.S.? First, it's important to understand how the Chinese regime views food security. Kennedy notes China has a very peculiar relationship with food security. Uh, it is an enormous emphasis in that country. It always has been. Uh, I don't think anybody forgets the famines, uh, you know, of, of the early, you know, the mid and, and mid to late part of the 20th century. And because of that emphasis. In that country, possessing the means to increase their own domestic food security is job number one. Uh, and, and lying, stealing, bartering, whatever it takes to get that technology, uh, China has proven willing to do. But beyond China's own borders. It allows them to go to other places like Africa, for example, where the, the access to and the means uh, of growing more reliable, more robust, uh, more modern type crops and utilizing more modern cropping methods would go a long ways towards helping lift Africa out of poverty. Kennedy points out that China's global infrastructure strategy, the Belt and Road Initiative, also applies to agriculture. You could also do Belt and Road with uh, food and with energy. And it's a massive diplomatic lever in a lot of places where China could come in and say, hey, we can give the farm equipment, the methods, the machinery, and this very expensive intellectual property. We can provide this all to you to lift yourselves up out of uh, food issues or food poverty, uh, but we want access to these critical minerals or we want to build a military base on your shoreline or whatever it may be. Uh, it's a very powerful lever. As to why it's such a powerful lever. U.S. says, hey, we'll, we'll give you some bags of wheat or some bags of rice to help feed yourselves. This is China saying, we're not going to give you a fish. We're going to teach you to fish, but we want something very valuable in return. And so that is one way in which internationally theft of American agriculture intellectual property has a direct line to undermining American diplomatic and national security efforts worldwide. But as for just how much pull that gives, it's important to note the difference between seeds and infrastructure. Take a bridge, for example, a structure that can last for decades. But many seeds might be good for only one crop. But when you're talking about crops, particularly genetically modified crops, with at least with grains, these are annual crops. 
Okay, so once they're harvested, you, you don't take the corn seeds and put them back into the soil. They're not useful in that. You have to have new seed that was grown specifically to be seed for a full crop. That gives the Chinese regime a lot of power. Also giving them the seed that's only good once and only really keeps in condition in a bag for a year or two. Now you have the ability to every single year take your ball and go home if you don't like the way they're, they're playing. And so it's a variant of debt trap diplomacy, but it's also one that hits immediately and hits very, very close to home uh, in a way that maybe we're repossessing your bridge or your railroad does not. Now, as to whether China can weaponize those seeds against the U.S.? It is possible uh, to, to turn on or off genetic triggers in the seed that uh, can cause it to fail. It looks fine. It produces a, a plant for a while, but then it fails at a certain point. Kennedy says it's more likely China would choose to weaponize bacteria that could wipe out America's crops. The issue more, I think, is about the weaponization of bacteria, funguses, and the threat of that, being able to introduce that into our agriculture ecosystems in a way that really uh, wipes out our ability to produce crops at scale or uh, creates toxins in the plant that if that gets fed to animals can kill the animals. Uh, that is a far probably bigger threat from a biosecurity standpoint. Now, speaking of wiping out food supplies, China's memory of widespread famines is still rather fresh in mind for many of the country's communist leaders. A recent report by the USCC titled China's Interest in U.S. Agriculture, Augmenting Food Security Through Investment Abroad, notes that China has two ways to deal with boosting its own food supply. One, purchase land abroad to cultivate crops. Or two, boost crop output at home. Stealing seeds falls into the second category. But let's first zoom in on the first, purchasing land. In a lot of parts of the world is, is if you are uh, putting up the resources or the money to put a crop in, uh, it is very common to see the, the growing crop. Here in the U.S., we call it the growing crop on the balance sheet. It's very common to see that collateralized as part of the financial transaction and where a bank is able to basically take first position on however much sales of crops is needed to pay the loan back. China could easily do the same thing. It is very likely that it's doing the same thing. And when you own that plot of land, more than just the crops growing out are involved. But when you're talking about farmland, you're also talking about here in the U.S., for example, access to not only the farmland, but the water that's on it. If you buy a tranche of acres that has some farmland, but let's say it also has timber, you also have timber rights to that. You can harvest those trees and utilize them for other purposes. And now you've got two or three or four exportable products coming off of one tract of land. Sometimes it's what's next to the plot of land. Former ICE Special Agent Victor Avila goes on to explain. In Texas, just a couple of years ago, there was a major purchase of 140,000 acres of uh, Texas land on our border in Del Rio, Texas, right next to an Air Force base. And uh, once it was looked into, of course, it was tied to individuals with, uh, tied to the CCP. And it's not just Texas. And when it comes to land being purchased very close to critical military installations, as we've seen in Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, as we've seen in for a wind project uh, in Texas uh, near Del Rio and Laughlin Air Force Base, what we're now seeing, too, is land ownership used as a potential vector, uh, a likely vector for various forms of espionage to be formed against the United States military. 
Military intel analyst and Air Force veteran Andrew McCarthy says there's another aspect in play. Uh, you could look at this from the angle of transnational crime and corruption in a conventional sense in that China's laundering money with these properties. We see Russia do that a lot in London and New York. China does it in New York and Canada quite a bit too. So we can look at it from that process, right? Land ownership is capital investment. You can launder your money. And it goes beyond that. They're moving money. They're moving intelligence. They're dangerously close to uh, intelligence uh, training facilities. It might not even be intelligence training facilities. It could be conventional DOD facilities. We've caught them in Texas. Uh, we've caught them in San Diego, in uh, New Zealand, in Scotland. But specifically regarding farming, I think it's a big issue in Texas and throughout middle America uh, where it sort of flies off the radar. A lot of our issues do, right? Uh, domestic you know, domestically, politically. As to how the situation got to this stage, Kennedy says. But in the 2000s, with the rise of ag investment or ag land investment as an alternative uh, asset within a lot of institutions' portfolios, you started to see a lot of international financial consortiums, uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, state banking and financial resources stepping forward under LLCs and you know, corporations and all sorts of other manners to buy land worldwide in Brazil, Africa, Europe, the U.S. It's and and be able to take positive control of that. Select the farmers, select what crops are grown, select who the crops are sold to, and now you have secured on that acre and and scale that to however many hundreds of thousands of acres. You've secured your own supply chain for your country as the owner of that land, even if it's on foreign soil. Now that we know about the problems, how do we solve it? Kennedy says we need stricter laws. One is to get a lot, uh, a lot more granular and a lot more accurate with the record keeping around land ownership in the U.S. He points out that right now people can write whatever they want and won't really be punished under the law. Under that first step, Kennedy outlines what he believes those laws should look like. Hook some teeth to it. Uh, to where if you lie or you refuse to disclose, you're punished for it. Uh, and C, certainly make it publicly available uh, as open source data. Who owns what acre at the acre level everywhere in the U.S.? Secondly, sanctions. I'm not a huge advocate for uh, foreign entities being able to own U.S. land at scale. If they want to own 50 acres or 100 acres to put a plant, that's fine. Uh, but what, when we're talking about some countries have hundreds of thousands or millions of acres uh, of property under foreign national control in the U.S. I don't think this is something we should do. And this isn't just affecting landowners. Kennedy says all agencies have a role. So it's not just Treasury that has a voice. It's the Pentagon. It's the trade representative within the White House. It's commerce and so on and so forth. But what you see even within Asifius and some of these other agencies is these internal conflicts and disagreements over how big a threat is a China. How bad is it for the U.S. if we don't let China and its massive piggy bank come invest into the U.S.? And then it becomes a question of if they're able to muddy the waters and throw enough money at local, state, and federal officials for economic development, do we then say we're willing to sacrifice national security for economic development? And that becomes the fight at the federal level. So China has become very adept at exploiting these loopholes at the federal level. They've become very adept at purchasing the loyalty of local and state politicians below the radar of the federal apparatus. To counter against that, McCarthy says. House needs to have more oversight. Uh, congressional candidates that are running need to take that into consideration. Anyone that wants to hold a political office in the United States need to, needs, needs to be abreast of these concerns. 
Um, and I would say this, it's not just capital markets, it's not just land, it's not just intelligence, it's, it's academia, it's culture, it's uh, the psychological and intelligence warfare that we're going through in terms of culture, it's a battle for culture. Turning off the NBA's, you know, players' right to speak, uh, totally sort of redesigning what they want the American private sector to be, you know, in their image. And it's not just here in America. Zooming out to the global scale. And if you look at this on a greater scale with Belt and Road, it's the same thing. Everywhere they go, they want to leave a cultural imprint to say that the way that China's way is the right way, right? When in the West, we've said, no, you, freedom is going gonna, is gonna to reign supreme. Uh, and that, and that, that every man is free and this should be natural. This should be a knee-jerk response to being a human. China's making a great case for why that's, why that's not working out so well in the West. So I know that's a loaded statement, but we need to look at like 50 different categories the same way that they do in their whole of government approach and not have the hubris uh, to do what we've done in other, in other lesser states. And McCarthy notes part of the solution lies in just how rampant and far-reaching China's infiltration has become. Silver lining about everything that China does is that it's so insidious and it mechanizes the vehicles that we currently have that are supposed to be there to run a society, um, that it, it creates conversations about inter intergovernmental communication uh, and it just a more resilient approach to China because when they are at such an insidious level, it takes a multifaceted defense and they're so integrated, so insidious that I, I think it's resiliency. So you need like four or five solutions to every China challenge because they're going to hit you on all those angles. McCarthy says we need to make our stance clear. We need to get more aggressive, um, take a harder line. We need to echo this throughout the halls of Congress. Every committee should be an oversight committee, but all of these committees should be involved with the three-letter agencies on the executive side, the local level, full governmental approach, which would remind you of China, whole of government. So start borrowing from their toolkit, start using some of their tactics against them. From millions of acres of farmland to a single kernel of corn, China's theft of U.S. agriculture has immediate and far-reaching consequences. And as experts warn, it covers all sectors of society. Now we have a much larger problem that we've allowed ourselves to be undermined in too many ways. And so public recognition of that's number one. Number two is public pressure. Uh, not only on congressmen, uh, not only on the White House, not only on the various judicial branches, but also on the, the, the regulatory and bureaucratic apparatus itself to uh, take a very hard look at itself and you know, understand that where they are compromised by Chinese money or Chinese influence, uh, we need to do a lot more to root that out and destroy it. Rooting out China's agriculture theft begins on the ground level, starting with each individual and reaching all the way to the top of the government. Because it's not just our food that's at stake, it's also national security and even diplomacy around the world. Coming up, nuclear power is growing around the world. Countries are upgrading their arsenals in the face of Russia's invasion in China's threat. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Now we turn to today's news. A new report is out on the current state of nuclear weapons around the globe. It says the world's major nuclear powers are all expanding and upgrading their nuclear arsenals. Here's more. Even though the number of nuclear warheads dropped slightly last year, a new report says it will probably increase in the coming decade. The report comes from Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. The think tank is based in Sweden and focuses on research in arms control. There are only nine countries in the world that are armed with nuclear weapons. The U.S., Russia, the U.K., France, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. The U.S. and Russia are the biggest players in the group. Together, they own over 90 percent of all global nuclear weapons combined. But China is catching up. The Chinese Communist Party has been ramping up its nuclear build. Last year, satellite images show China was constructing 300 missile silos in a desert. Silos like these usually host ballistic missiles that can fly across continents and weapons made to deliver nuclear warheads. Researchers believe these silos could significantly expand China's nuclear arsenal, even to the point of surpassing those of Russia or America. Right now, Moscow holds the largest stockpile of nuclear warheads, followed by the U.S. and China. Both the U.S. and China increased their nuclear weapons spending last year. Juliet Song, NTD News. In the latest fallout between China and Taiwan, the island is now threatening to take Beijing to the World Trade Organization. That's after China suspended imports of grouper fish from Taiwan. Taiwan Customs Administration said last Friday it had repeatedly detected banned chemicals in grouper from Taiwan and would suspend those imports. Taiwan's Council of Agriculture dismissed the accusation, saying that it would provide data to China and request a response adding that if China does not respond, Taiwan won't rule out taking the issue to the WTO. In a Facebook post, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen called the ban yet another violation of international trade rules, which would not help normal trade activities across the strait and would serve only to hurt bilateral relations. While most of Taiwanese grouper is consumed at home, more than 90% of the fish that is exported goes to China. The grouper ban adds to a list of other imports suspended by China, including Taiwanese pineapples, sugar apples, and wax apples. China's bans have dealt a big hit to Taiwan's agriculture industry, and the island's authorities have accused them of being politically motivated. Relations between Taipei and Beijing are at their lowest in decades. China claims democratically ruled Taiwan as its own territory, and is increasing political and military pressure to get the island to accept Chinese sovereignty. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Every once in a while, something comes along so masterful, it leaves you in awe. So inspiring, it changes your life. So beautiful you wish it would never end. When that happens, it's something not to be missed. Shen Yun, an all-new production every year.
The performance was enchanting. I feel better about the world. I feel uplifted. It touches you. It really does. The expertise of the dancers was really, really strong. To know that it was live music was really fantastic. We didn't want to miss this. Make sure you see it. Have to come. Life-changing.